I'm okay asking the stupid questions. And what I've found is that for the most part, people are limiting themselves in the questions they're asking because they're afraid they don't know uh, enough to ask the question and, and they'll look stupid or they'll ask the wrong question. The thing I hear the most, especially with the work I do now with Bible Project, is people come up and say, man, thank you, you're asking the question I'm thinking. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Today, I get to share with you a conversation that I had with John Collins. Now, John is the co-founder of an organization called The Bible Project. Perhaps you've heard of The Bible Project. It's a nonprofit, crowdfunded organization that produces 100% free Bible videos, podcasts, blogs, classes, and educational Bible resources. Truly, they do so much to help make the biblical story accessible to everyone everywhere. And man, there's so many reasons why I wanted to talk to John. Number one is that if you haven't checked out their product, you really need to go see it. Their videos are all over YouTube. And if you just search the Bible project, you'll find them. But I mean, what they create, regardless of what you believe, you can't deny it's just absolutely world-class. And what's crazy is the model behind it is so counterintuitive because the organization is structured as a nonprofit and they provide all of these resources for free, but the way that they fund did it and the way that they pay for their now massive team, I think they have over a hundred people working for their team now, is they've got patrons who commit to paying it forward essentially and who are so bought into the vision of what John and his partner Tim and what the entire team is doing that they literally want to pay for the world to be able to access it. And man, the world is accessing it. Uh, their videos now cover the globe in a wide variety of languages and have millions upon millions of views. But here's the other thing I've learned about the Bible Project that is so interesting. As an organization, they run a really tight ship. Their organizational culture is vibrant and healthy, and they are so deeply intentional about the fact that although they are structured as a nonprofit, they operate as a business and they make sure that their organization is truly organized. There's so much that I wanted to talk to John about from how he stays in his creative lane and allows other people to run many of the day-to-day -day operations of the business to how he ensured that he and his partner, Tim, we're actually investing in a collaborative partnership that was actually going to be healthy over the long term and that they would actually want to show up to work every day to how to make the complex really, really simple. But before we get into all of that, I really wanted y'all to hear about what he was doing before he started this little side hustle called The Bible Project. Right before Bible Project, I was uh, leading two businesses. One was an explainer video shop that I started with a few friends. And that started in 2009, and that turned into a pretty large operation, about 50 people doing hundreds of videos at a time. And then I started kind of out of that uh, digital agency that was more working on brand and website and that kind of stuff for companies other than just explainer videos. And so I was working on both of those businesses and Day-to-day -day changed a lot because those businesses were pretty dynamic. With the explainer video shop, it had gotten to the point where I just was on the board. And um, that was a pretty simple 
lift for me. And then in the the digital agency, um, my role in the company was, uh, I think we called me head of story, but I would, especially at the beginning of any client engagement, I would sit down with the team, their team and our team, and really try to pull out like what their story is, what they're trying to explain and why it matters, and then put together a brief. So we would usually do like these half day or full day discovery days that I would lead. And then I'd pass that work off to our creative teams to then do whatever it was, whether it was going to be marketing or branding or building a mobile webpage or whatever. Previously, though, in the explainer video shop, I was totally in the work, like right, doing the same thing, discovery days, writing scripts, uh, hiring creatives and and producing videos. And did you enjoy that? Like, like, did you enjoy doing the work? And was that what made you most alive at that time? Yeah, that's why I was in it. Like I was doing it as a freelancer on my own, but I was really bad at knowing how to make enough money doing it as a contract freelancer. And I didn't have a vision for how it could scale. So having some business partners that helped with that allowed me to just focus on the work. And then they thought about kind of the scaling and operations. And I loved it. I loved being in the work. Now, the difficult thing, though, became when we disagreed on some values within the organization, like how are we going to do the work and how are we going to spend money? And I found that by relinquishing kind of my leadership responsibilities, just saying, let me be the creative guy. I, I oftentimes found myself day to day going, man, I don't know if I really like working here anymore. In the business I'm doing now, which is a nonprofit, I ran it for the first five years, really wanting to make sure that it was a place that I wanted to work in. You would want to continue working. Yeah. What was in, in those first uh, two companies, which were those your first two companies to own yourself? Yes. I mean, a company can be just your your freelance contract shop. Okay. But those were the first two kind of operations that scaled beyond just you, yeah. it sounds like, correct? Okay. In in those first two, what was your skill set, do you think, that made those things grow and succeed? And where did that skill set come from? Like, was it truly the, the art was the skill set? Or what was your natural strengths that contributed to those two things growing the way that they did? I was the product guy. Like, I, I defined and created the product which we were selling. Which is the videos, correct? Yeah, which was originally just explainer videos. It was early on in early 2000s where YouTube was becoming a thing. Video editing equipment and cameras and motion graphic software and all that was just way more accessible. And so it was a breeding ground for a brand new type of product, which now we just kind of take for granted. It's like we call them explainer videos or, or whatever you want to call them. But that was like a brand new thing. And so kind of figuring that out, how to work in that medium and making some of the pilot ones that got us the business and then figuring out just the production pipeline, really how that all that works, not how to scale it per se, but just, you know, how to do it. Yeah. And where did that skill set come from? Because it, it, to explain explainer videos, it's truly like taking maybe it's an onboarding process or maybe it's what a product does or or the fundamentals of something that can be big and hairy and complex. And it's distilling it down into something that's really simple, correct? Like where did the ability to do that come from? Because don't you, I mean, you have your bachelor's, I think, in theology, correct? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, where does explainer videos come from out of that? Well, I went to school to learn Bible theology because I grew up in the church and I was taught that the Bible like holds the, the goods, the secrets for 
this life and the next. And it's also, it's also really hard to understand, I find. And I found as a Christian, I began to really appreciate that someone could explain something to me, a pastor or teacher, in such a way that it really moved me and shaped the way that I thought about the world and myself dramatically to where like I couldn't unsee it and my life changed. And I saw the power of communication and then really believed in the power of communication because of that, because here God gave us this piece of communication. People who I respect were good communicators. So I just became really fascinated with that and also found that I enjoyed and had a knack for trying to explain things. And also I'm just kind of obsessive in wanting to understand something. So that obsessive personality with whatever the ability is to be able to kind of empathetically get into someone's mind and know how it is that they're going to onboard a new idea was something that I just had to kind of intuit my way through. I did take communication classes in college, but I also just studied teachers that I really admired. And then a lot of it is just trying stuff. (laughs) I love that, man. I feel like that's so many entrepreneur stories is just trial and error and figuring out your way through it. In the process of becoming really effective at taking complex things and making it simple, are there principles about communication that you learned that you like that you still like almost like you said, like you can't unsee them, like principles about communication that affect the way you do work and life every day today? Yeah. And I, I need to sit down and kind of write them all out. So I don't have like a good list in my mind, but but there are. So we'll kind of weave our way through them, I suppose, if, if it's interesting. One is to be curious Curiosity is really important. And I think part of curiosity is humility. So maybe put them together, like be humble and be curious. One of the things that I found working with clients when I had to explain what they were up to was I was really intimidated, especially intimidated that they would think I was stupid. So I would walk into these rooms of people who like, you know, maybe it's like cloud computing or it's IT security or something. And I just, I know nothing about it. And these guys, this is their world. And so I come into a boardroom and I just am like, oh, please, I hope they don't think I'm stupid. Please, like, I want to, I want them to think I'm smart. And that concern about looking smart became a hindrance to actually being able to figure out what was going on because it would keep me from asking the questions I needed to ask. And so what I started doing was at the beginning of any of these discovery days is I would, I would ask for permission from them to ask dumb questions. I would just say, hey, right up front, can I have permission to ask the stupid questions? Like, you guys know what you're talking about. I know nothing. And they would be like, of course, like, of course. And then I just like, I would feel unburdened by that that sense of insecurity. And so I, I try to kind of keep that mindset of like, I'm okay asking the stupid questions. And what I found is that for the most part, people are limiting themselves in the questions they're asking because they're afraid they don't know uh, enough to ask the question and, and they'll look stupid or they'll ask the wrong question. The thing I hear the most, especially with the work I do now with Bible Project, is people come up and say, man, thank you. You're asking the question I'm thinking. Or you're asking the question that I am wrestling with, but I didn't even really realize how to verbalize. And so being curious and humble kind of go hand in hand with that. 
Well, man, I, I'm interested in that because in the content that I've consumed from the Bible Project, it truly is one of the things that I'm most appreciative about your role and what y'all are doing is I feel like it would be so easy to get to a point where you've done this for years now that you forget that, oh, because there's probably some knowledge that you know now that you didn't know two or three years ago that would cause you to not ask the questions you would have asked three years ago. And I just feel like you've constantly hit the refresh button on that humility to always ask the base level fundamental questions. And that's so helpful for the listener. So how do you preserve that curious posture whenever it's something that you've been doing now for a while? Yeah, I think that one is that I'm just kind of forgetful. <laughs> so like something will click for me. And then if I get some distance from it, I will be like, uh, I'm not sure I still remember how that clicked. There's this thing called uh, the illusion of knowledge or the illusion of knowing. And it's a strong urge that we have as humans to think that we understand something that we don't understand. And a, a great example of this is if I asked you, hey, do you kind of basically know how a bicycle works? Probably be like, yeah, yeah, I basically know gears and the pedals and the steering. And uh, yeah, I know how a bicycle works. Now, if I asked you to draw a bicycle, like if you sat down right now and tried to draw a bicycle, it would be really embarrassing, actually. You would kind of realize like, whoa, I actually don't know how this thing, like I can't even visualize it. And that's the illusion of knowing. It's this deep intuitive sense that I get it. But when it comes to brass tacks of having to explain it or draw it or diagram it or whatever, you realize like, I actually don't get it to the level I thought I did. And it just might be my personality, but I am very skeptical of my own sense of knowing anything. So I'm constantly thinking, I actually don't understand this, is my default. And that might just be a biological thing, perhaps, but maybe it's something also that you can develop. So it's, it's hard because the illusion of knowing is an important tool to have to, to just not get overwhelmed and lost in the world, <laughs> like right? Because the world is so complex. Everything is so complex that if you're constantly like, uh, I don't know how anything works, you're just going to be a fish out of water. So it's very useful. But knowing how to turn it off and allowing yourself an opportunity to be like, I probably actually don't know. And that's okay. And I want to figure it out. Have you seen parallels where that quality, like being curious and maintaining almost intellectual humility has helped you in leadership beyond just the videos and the creative side, but has helped you in leadership, John? I think it's an important leadership skill for sure. I think we've known this as Christians. We talk, I mean, we, we have Jesus, the, the, our leader who's saying, you know, the first is last and the last is first. And I haven't come to be served, but to serve. So that's kind of been, I mean, I grew up with that principle. And then guys like Simon Sinek recently in the last decade have really championed that in new ways and, and just social psychology of just like, yeah, like really good leaders, leaders eat last kind of thing. And so, yeah, people really appreciate that. People could smell it from a distance too. They kind of like immediately like, oh, okay. Like I don't have to like arm myself up and defend myself. I feel a sense of just like ease of and forgiveness and, and humility. We don't have to all have this figured out right now. Um, and that really helps people do their best work for sure. That's helpful. Are there other qualities or principles associated with making the complex simple that stand out? And is there any that you're like, man, I just wish people knew this. Is there anything that stands out that it's like, man, I've had to spend a lot of time thinking about this and I wish people knew this. I think good thinking happens when you write and you edit what you write. 
And it's easy to have kind of muddied thinking when you're just in your own head or even in a conversation. And we forgive each other of muddy thinking. And But when you have to write something out and make it really clear and then edit it and edit it and make it streamlined more and more and more, that process of writing is is a way to help you think clearly about an idea. And so I think everyone needs to just practice being a good writer, no matter what your job is. Um, we're all writing. We're writing emails. We're writing uh, messages to each other on posts all over the place. We're uh, writing briefs, whatever it is, really, really clear writing how, and I learned this as a video editor first, is how much you can cut down. I remember, I remember editing a video. I did a bunch of interviews with a bunch of people and I needed to cut all the interviews down to about five minutes. So my first cut was like 10, 15 minutes or something. And I was like, man, okay, I love this cut. I love everything that everyone says. How am I going to get it any shorter? Well, I got to try. So I go through, I start cutting things down. I get it to about five minutes. I'm like, wow, this is so much stronger. I love this cut. This cut is so good. And then I press myself like, can I make it even shorter? And so I did it again. And every single time I was cutting things I thought were so important, what ended up happening was the piece as a whole got stronger. And so when like Tim and I are writing scripts, we call them speed bumps usually is just it's like oh that's such a good idea that's so interesting but it's not actually it's it's kind of slowing us down and it's not getting us to where we're supposed to be going so i guess that's two principles like writing to think clearly but then just just obsessively editing and getting out anything that isn't essential i think einstein famously said you know make it as simple as possible and and no simpler and it's a lot of work like mark twain said famously i would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. Yeah, that's right. So how do you determine what's essential? Because I, I feel like you you could run the risk of, you kind of alluded to it, oversimplifying, but also that you'd be paranoid of like, man, I think this should be taken out, but maybe this is actually contributing to the strength of the piece. So do y'all have criteria for what you deem is essential to, you know, whether it's a two minute video or a 10 minute video that you're creating? We haven't created any guidelines. It's pretty intuitive. That that's a I mean that's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing that like because uh, from a consumer standpoint that's amazing I feel like because of how consistent y'all's work is. So that's a credit to y'all that it's just pretty remarkable. Well, we should actually figure out how to verbalize it more so that that it's scalable then and it's not just an intuition. But what I what I pay attention to first, there's two things I pay attention to. One is, am I confused? Is there any point where I'm just like, I don't think I know what this means? And any, even just a small amount of confusion just brings my mind out of the like flow of the logic of the script, the flow of the story, and it makes me start thinking about the thing I'm thinking about. And now I'm out of it. And the same thing with boredom. Am I bored at all? which sometimes just pace, but oftentimes it's just like we can only kind of stand so much, even if it's wonderful information, if it's not leading us somewhere before it's kind of like, ah, I'm bored. So I'm paying attention to those two things in my spirit, like am I confused or am I bored? And those become the red flags. And oftentimes when those things flag, I'll look at what we're looking at and I'll be like, oh, we don't need this. This isn't necessary. We take it out. That's another thing. Just take it out and then see if the script still works or see if the whatever it is, the email or the brief or the the pitch deck still works without it. And then you'll realize like, oh, it does. And so, you know, writers call this killing their darlings. It's, It's painful, but it's the right thing to do. 
And then how do you evaluate the effectiveness of something you communicate? And this is getting into some of the work y'all do now, but I feel like it's so easy to, if you only evaluate yourself to think you communicated something great, and then you find out, you talk to the person that consumed the communication, you're like, oh, they didn't understand that at all. So how do you evaluate how effective you were in translating an idea from your head and from Tim's head into a video that then makes it into the other person's mind? Well, we have a lot of people involved by the time the video's done and everyone gets to participate in asking that question, like, do I get it? Is this working? So Tim and I will dialogue and then write a script, but then we'll bring in a storyboard artist and a director and we'll bring in a visual development artist. And all of them are then poking and pushing and often refining our scripts for us by saying, this feels muddy to me. Or they'll come up with an illustration that's a really cool idea and it unlocks the script for us in a new way. And then we kind of rewrite based off of that illustration. So it becomes very collaborative and then just the group will keep you honest. If you're doing it yourself, you can simulate that by just giving yourself distance. So if you're working on a story or an essay, once you get like your first or second or third draft and it's feeling really good, you just kind of want to publish it, especially if you're blogging, right? You just want to get that content out. But you put that away in a drawer, file it away, come back to it in a couple of weeks, and you're just looking at it completely different. You're looking at it like an outsider again, like you're reading it for the first time. And the more distance you give yourself, the better. I heard from the director of Thor Ragnarok. I forget his name. He's a popular director who's done a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, I just looked up Taika... Waititi. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Super funny guy, but also just a brilliant writer and director. Okay. So he was being interviewed about his process. And this was brilliant. So he goes, well, I write a script, I finish the script, and then I th- and I, and he'll think it's brilliant, right? We all think what we've done is, is amazing. Usually once we've worked really hard on it, we're pretty excited about it. He says he puts it away in a drawer for a year, a full year. And then after a year, he pulls it out and he just reads it. And after a year, it's going to feel like you're reading it for the first time, for sure. He reads it, and then he throws it away, and then he starts again from the beginning and rewrites it from memory. And the reason is because anything that was working, he's going to remember. All the lines of dialogue that just really sang out to him, like all the beats that were really working, all the scenes that were just shimmering, those are now in his psyche. And so now he gets to just write fresh with those things as his as what he's after. I thought that was a really fascinating, a very extreme version of what we're talking about, which is just giving yourself space to be able to read it like an outsider. Associate with that, in, anytime you have an idea and you bring other people into it and kind of open it up to them, essentially like chop this up, let me know what doesn't make sense, let me know it's not clear. Do you ever find that it's hard to hold on to your idea with a loose enough grip to allow other people to kind of have their way with it and add their input and stuff like that. And I guess, how do you have the proper posture when receiving feedback on the something that you care deeply about and something that you've worked really hard on? I think one of the things that helps with that is just reps. Like if it's your first or second thing, it feels so personal because this is the one thing that you could point to and be like, this came out of me. So I just had this experience. I just wrote a manuscript for, for a, a novel that I finished. And I went and I got some beta readers And I was so, so intimidated. When I showed up for the Zoom call with these beta readers who read my manuscript, I was flooded with panic. And I hadn't felt this way for a long time with any of my work. And it was 
because this was like, this was the first time I had done this. And in some way I felt like it was representing me and I didn't want to fail. And, and it turns out like it wasn't good. Like it turned out like there was a lot in it that just wasn't working. So it just reps. It's just like, okay, let's try again. Let's go again. I think it's, it's just keeping at it. Was that still hard to hear? Like, did that get to you some to, to get feedback that it's like, oh man, this wasn't what you thought it could have been? Or, or how do you respond to that? Well, I mean, they were really gracious. Everyone was really, really gracious. And they, and also said things that were, you know, like, this is working really well. I like this character. I like this device. But what I felt during it was, man, some of the things they're saying, I'm realizing are right and are pretty fundamental to what's going on here that I feel like I'm going to have to start over. And at first I just felt in denial about that. And then I just had to like sleep on it and think about it and then let myself be like, okay, yep, I got I to gotta start over. Our critics, unless they're our enemies, which if you're sitting down with your enemies to be criticized, like change your strategy. But like the people that you want to hear from, their criticism, they're for you. And so, you know, they're going to be really kind. So you, you almost have to like, I actually started that call just being like, hey guys, I want you to know that none of this is sacred. This is my first time, like beat it up. Like I wanted to give them permission because it's easy for everyone to just want to be polite and try not to hurt anyone's feelings. So I think we get very attached to our work and that's good, but just through reps and through just realizing that there's always something more, we don't have to get so wrapped up in it that we can't hear criticism. I think there's an element of that that seems directly applicable to leadership in that so much of what makes a deeply creative person successful is somewhat of a level of gut level intuition and belief in something before they've ever seen it. And so they believe in something, they pursue it, and in some ways maybe can see something that doesn't yet exist. And in that way, they're leading. And as a result, there's sometimes where people looking on from the outside that you ask to evaluate it, like can't see it the way you can see it because they don't have that intuition. And and that's why you created it and they didn't create it necessarily. And so I guess, how do you weigh that tension of there's times where you've got to trust your intuition and trust your gut and run with an idea that is relatively unproven that maybe some people don't believe versus, man, I need to acknowledge and hold outside perspectives and allow external opinions to influence what I'm doing here. Does that question connect? Do you resonate with that? Yeah, totally. There's people in my life, their opinion holds a lot more weight than other people. And I do allow myself to anticipate that someone might not get what I'm trying to do. But when that happens, I realize like what I'm trying to do isn't working yet because they're not getting it. And so that doesn't mean what I'm trying to do is not not going to work. It just means it's not working yet. So let me try again. I also believe that just most people are actually really smart. It's one of the principles I use when I write is just like this belief that everyone's really intelligent, but we don't have time to try to do all the research ourselves. And we often fall into kind of these heuristics of kind of bad thinking just naturally, but not because we're dumb, just because like that's how our psyche works. And so when I'm trying to like simplify something or I'm trying to make something maybe sophisticated, feel simple or whatever, I feel like I should be able to get almost anyone there on the same page with me. And so all, all of that becomes really good input to, okay, it's not working yet. And then I'll try to figure out why. 
what is it they're getting hung up on? And that often helps me realize what might help unlock a revision. Man, that is such a helpful pre like helpful and empowering and emboldening predisposition to just start with the idea that everyone is really, really smart. I, I really like that because I feel like so much of our culture and world today doesn't start with that predisposition. It's like so much of like culture today starts with, oh, we, we're talking, remember, we're talking to a bunch of idiots. So you got to dump that. It's like, <laughs> yeah, and, everyone's reading at a fifth grade level and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, use the smallest words you can. It's like, no, you don't have to do that. Just do a better job of explaining the words you are using. Man, I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, so jumping back in your story, you're playing the creative role in those two organizations. And it's at that point, I guess, while those are still running, that you have the idea of starting what at that time just felt like a side hustle. Is that correct? Yeah, Bible Project was, I designed it to be, I wanted it to be a project where I could work on it on the side with my friend Tim. We could write scripts. I knew how, I had a whole list of artists that I love to work with who were freelancers who I could tap when we had enough money. So I just thought if we had a mechanism to raise money at whatever pace it came in, and then we just would like make those scripts or make those videos. And what I had hoped was that we could have enough come in that we could just keep all those freelancers fairly busy so they didn't have to always be looking for other projects. And I would still need a full-time job, but you know, this would be something really fun to do on the side. But it quickly outgrew that vision to where I came on full-time, Tim came on full-time. We built a whole animation studio all in-house. And then from there, it just continued to grow. And it was all from just asking the crowd, like, hey, do you want more of this? And letting them drive the speed of, of the organization. Yeah. And so that's kind of a, a good example of intuition in some ways, because I, I think I heard you say on another podcast that I listened to that, like you sat down with some people and, and basically their feedback was like, well, you don't understand how the real world works, but people aren't just going to pay you for. So it's like, I mean, that's, that, that's such an interesting thing to say. This is the model that I'm pursuing. You stuck with it. One of the things that I'm interested in from the early stages is what did you see in Tim that made him a person you really wanted to work with on this project? I also saw a lot of humility, but married with just a lot of deep understanding and experience with with the text, uh, with Hebrew Bible and with, with the whole Bible. But in particular, he was the kind of guy I could ask any question to and I didn't feel throttled at all. Like I never felt like I was asking a stupid question. I never felt like a question was off limits. I think I would oftentimes feel as a Christian talking to other Christians that if I ask a certain question and maybe we'll ask it too many times, everyone might start thinking that I'm not really like a legit Christian. And he just never made me feel that way. And then the other thing was Tim would sharpen my questions. So I would come ask him my questions of the Bible. And then he would say, those are really interesting questions. Here are the questions that the Bible is wrestling with. And they were often other questions and they were often more interesting questions. So you kind of helped reshape the questions I was asking, which was really powerful. So those two things mainly, and that he was kind of just also wicked smart. If you're talking to someone that is maybe considering bringing in a co-founder on something they're really passionate about or bring someone into their tight-knit executive circle or something like that, would you have any advice on like, man, make sure you're considering this? Because it, 
I just get the vibe that y'all's working relationship, you and Tim's, is just so collaborative and there's so much really healthy chemistry there. Um, so is there anything you've learned from that relationship that you would use to advise someone who's thinking about entering into that? Yeah, one one thing that I'd learned kind of coming into working with Tim was I came to appreciate that not everyone has the same reasons for doing business. I started to think of it in terms of having a business narrative that there isn't one right or wrong business narrative, but there also isn't one size fits all business narrative. And I've been partners with people who I assumed they had a paradigm for business that came from their narrative that they didn't have. And there wasn't enough alignment between them. So one thing with Tim, I remember very early on is just being like, you know, tell me what got you to where you are now. At that time, he was a pastor in a church, and he had finished his PhD in biblical studies and Semitic languages. And so what got you here? And like, what drove you here? And then like, what's going to continue to drive you? Basically, like, what's the narrative behind all the decisions you're making vocationally? And just having a really open, honest conversation about that and then telling him mine. And then just kind of seeing like, whoa, okay, yeah, there's enough overlap, like that we can collaborate So that's what I would say. That's the main thing is if you're thinking of like partnering with someone in an official way is just making sure you know what their business narrative is, what yours is, which is oftentimes maybe not what you think it is at first. Because it's usually not as simple as just like, I want to make money. Sometimes it is. So really having a lot of introspection of what yours is and then just seeing what, what the overlap is. And then because the things about like chemistry And, you know, how well you can collaborate together. You know, there's a spark. You kind of feel that. But at the same time, like in any relationship, you're going to get in ruts. You're going to get on each other's nerves. And so if you can come back to kind of that core thing, you know, where do our business narratives collide and how do we continue to help each other in that? That becomes a center of gravity that becomes essential. When you think of business narrative, what did you tell him was your business narrative at that time? Like, what was the story that you presented to him at that time? Just because that's a concept I've never really thought of before, of like talking about your vocation through the lens of the story that it tells. Yeah. So, you know, starting Bible Project, I'd come out of building a business that was successful, was making a lot of money, but felt creatively dry, but also felt creatively frustrating because I felt limited in being able to chase after the skills and the projects that I felt like I wanted to do. So, which is basically this deep belief that good communication shapes how we think, shapes who we are, and that using the medium of video and animation, just using a visual medium, I could explain really important but nuanced and complicated ideas that will actually like... shape societies and help (laughs) make the world a better place or at least like help us understand each other more like kind of like this big idealistic kind of lofty vocational thing that was actually a pretty attached to me wanting to study the bible me, me even working in the church for a while this feeling of like as humans we're called to something pretty grand but we often lose our way and we often kind of just just like spiral into not liking each other. (laughs) And so how do we build common understanding and how do we like kind of collectively have these insights? And I wanted to be part of that. And I thought that the visual medium was developing in such a way that there was going to be cool new contributions. The world was also getting more and more complicated. 
So there was going to be this collision of opportunities to explain the world. So as a, as an artisan or a craftsman, like I, I wanted to be in there figuring that out. So that was my kind of business narrative. And so doing that with the Bible is a slam dunk, like amazing, important ideas, really sophisticated literature. Did those conversations in those early stages feel vulnerable? Because I could see how it would feel extremely vulnerable because you're kind of like saying, I'm exposing like my frustrations, my my vision for the future, my ideals of what I believe is possible. Did it feel like vulnerability at that time? You know, it didn't feel like vulnerability. It really felt like wisdom. It felt like security because I had so much frustration in the mismatch between that with other business partners that it was like, man, if we could be on the same page as this, like there's so much more security. I can, you know, decision-making is going to be a lot easier and I'm not going to find myself in a situation where I'm a little blindsided. So that felt great. I guess maybe what is intimidating is the chance that that person goes like, oh, well, that's your thing. It's a little naive. That's a little whatever. Like, I'm not that interested. And then that's like, oh, like you just said that like what I care about isn't important. Like you're crushing my my ego. And I think at that point, I don't know if I was, I don't know what it was. I, I think I just felt a little bit like I had nothing to lose at that point. And it was worth weeding out the wrong person than having someone make me feel good, even if they don't align with with my values. That's a helpful principle. How do you explain the early success? Like, how do you explain that you created some initial videos and and they popped in some ways? Well, partly it is, it's just the power of the visual medium to explain things. I've seen the success a number of times now in explaining technology and explaining ministries and now in explaining the Bible. So I think it's a powerful medium. And I think there's still a lot of a lot to do in that medium in explaining all sorts of things. So were you surprised when it happened? Or were you like, oh, this is what I expected. I, like I've seen this happen before. I was anticipating this. Yeah, actually, interestingly, so I did this whole spreadsheet of like how I expected it to go down. I was studying the science channels that were doing this crowdfunding model. Crash Course was like the biggest one. I don't know if you know those guys. The Green Brothers, old school vloggers. They got a million dollar grant from YouTube to just make really good YouTube content because back then it was like 2006 or something and it's just mainly cat videos. And so they started this channel called Crash Course and they're these like 10 minute educational pieces, mostly talking head, but then with some like explainer moments. And they're really good, really well written. They ended up getting a couple hundred thousand subscribers. They burned through the million dollars. They have lots of good content. And then they asked themselves, how are we going to continue this? Are we going to go after another grant? Are we going to put this stuff behind a paywall? How are we going to pay for it? And what they decided to do was to just ask their subscribers to just fund more videos. And so they started this thing called Subbable, which was later bought by Patreon. And this became the Patreon model, which is I'm a creator. Can you get behind this on a monthly basis? I want to keep making stuff. And they raised from their couple hundred thousand subscribers, I think like $50,000 in monthly pledges pretty quickly. And so they had Subbable. There was a number of science channels on there. And I just like looked at how many views they were getting, how many videos they had made, how many subscribers they had, and how many dollars were coming in and just ran all the math, found the averages. And I assumed 
that we could bring in more dollars per view than a science channel because it's religious and people love giving to, you know, religious things are a little more generous towards that, perhaps. I totally overestimated how many views we would get. I was used to putting out a video that would like get a million views fairly quickly. You don't know which one is going to do it, but eventually one will. So I thought after we make five or 10 of these videos, one of them is going to go viral. It's going to get millions of views and we'll raise the tide for it all. I totally overestimated that. Like it took us years before any one single video got to a million views. And really it was like all of them getting that way at the same time. What I totally underestimated was how much someone would give. So the average cost or the average gift on these science channels, and I don't remember the exact math, but let's say it was like five cents for every thousand views, which is actually good return. That's a good, like, like you know, if you were selling ad space, you know, five cent CPM, that's not nothing. And that's recurring, not one time. And we were getting like $5 per thousand views. Like, so we were like 100Xing what they were doing and that I totally didn't anticipate. And so that's the long answer. There's a hunger to want to understand the Bible. And we were making content that was making certain things that always were weird or confusing start to click. So that was awesome for people. Then there's just also, I think, just an environment already where it's like, I feel compelled to give my money to ministry. Like that's just like, it's important to me versus, you know, there's this bubbling kind of patronage model where it's like, oh, cool. I'll, you, you make, uh, you make that art. That's beautiful. I'll, I'll be a patron, but it's like, you like art, but it's not like central to your like being that this person makes that art. And I think people started to feel like, oh man, this is important. Like, this is like the Bible is central. Understanding the Bible is central to me and these guys are helping. So I, I think it was, I think it was that simple. But I do think the model would work for other types of content. And uh, there's just something powerful about not understanding something and suddenly totally understanding it. It's just, a, it's a very powerful thing. Uh, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but because of your experience in the previous two businesses, of those kind of becoming a place that you looked up and you're like, I no longer enjoy coming to work here. It sounds like you were a little bit more cautious about retaining maybe some of the leadership control for the first five years, I think you said, within the Bible Project. Is, is that correct? Yeah, I was really reluctant to... My instinct previously was like, let someone else deal with run run the ship. I just kind of want to be in my like laboratory, just kind of work on stuff. And so that switch to was like, man, I th if if I'm not actually running it, then the laboratory is going to become really stinky and I'm not going to work there. So yeah, for the first five years, and it would have been longer, but a guy who had become a really dear friend, he was on our board from the beginning. He was in a season of life ready to kind of do his last hurrah, like kind of his fourth quarter project before retirement. I'm sure, but I'm sure the guy's got a fifth quarter in him. We're talking about Steve, correct? Yeah, Steve. Yeah. yeah. So, and for people that are listening to this too, we did, I did an interview with Steve at Entree Leadership that we'll put in the show notes of this episode because such a wise leader, like wise, well-rounded, and just seems to compliment what y'all were building so well. But I mean, man, 
for the five years leading up to you kind of bringing Steve in as the executive director or whatever his initial role was, you, I mean, you must have been a very busy man because you're simultaneously driving the creative but also the operational side of the organization, right? Yeah, and it would go in sprints of the organization changing. While I wanted to kind of retain being the whatever, president, executive director, I think I just called myself president at that time. I was pretty quick to like relinquish control over things that I wasn't that interested in. So I didn't micromanage the organization. I just liked the fact that at any given point, (laughs) I could come in and be like, no, we're going to do this. But for the most part, you find people who are are smart and passionate, like just let them go for it and figure out how to stay in my own lane. So I still try to practice that even though I was the... uh, the president. And now I'm still I'm I'm still the chairman of the board of the organization and how a nonprofit works is there's no shareholders. The board ultimately makes the final decisions on what the business is, the mission is, the strategic business, like yeah, the main business strategies that you're going to be going after, hiring and firing the CEO. So, to that degree I'm still the boss. But ultimately, day to day, week to week, quarter to quarter, Steve is the per- he's the perfect guy and he, he he does a great job and he was the right guy and ready to go so i was really lucky well it's so interesting he described you i'll never forget he described you whenever i got to talk to him he was like you know john is what i would refer to as an unconscious competent and he was like he was so good at so many things and he put like i mean he just created this organization that was just remarkable for me to then step in and and be able to run in so many ways and so i mean he meant it as a really really high compliment i think there are so many people that deep down they do desire to do the creative work but because they can do the leadership management side like they never actually let it go. And so it's like they know how, it's it's never what they would want to spend their full time doing, but they know how, so they retain it. Was that hard to give that up in some ways? And was it hard to, in some ways, loosen your grip over the day-to-day operations and management of your organization? What was the motivation behind that, John? I love simplicity in life. If I can just have a like a simple focus yeah, which a 50-person team isn't necessarily conducive to simplicity all the time. <laughs> no. And I mean, we're at a new stage. I mean, we just are, we are about 100, 105 people now. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. That's amazing. My side of the organization, because I'm, I'm in charge of all content and product, is like half, half the organization. So still like half the organization reports up to me. And so it still keeps me pretty busy when it comes to management leadership stuff. But even there, it's a constant give and take a flux of like trying to find the right people and the right organizational structure so that I don't have to be involved in in too many day-to-day things. But at the same time, I don't want to remove myself from the human element of the organization because the stuff that gets tricky and taxing is all the interpersonal stuff. There's a proverb in the Bible. This is not exactly how it goes, but the essence of it is when there are a lot of ox in the field, there's a lot of shit in the stable. That's a that's a loose paraphrase. And uh, dealing with that, like, is like I want to remove myself from it when like someone's feeling frustrated with someone else, and there's interpersonal things or whatever it is. But I kind of been reminding myself lately that like you know, as much as I care about the craft, ultimately, what is any of this for? But that we're we're living life together as people. This is about relationships. 
And so I can't remove myself too far to where I um, don't have to deal with, you know, shoveling poop, essentially. <laughs> What's the biggest thing that you feel like you're learning right now? And it could be personally, it could be leadership or anything in between. Oh man, I'm having this kind of revolution in thinking about how do I explain explanation and the power of explanation? Because I actually have to go and give a talk in a couple of weeks. And it's like the first time I'm actually really like going to try to explain explanation. And um, there's this Hebrew word, bina, which is usually translated understanding. And it's it's just been blowing my mind. It's It's such a beautiful word. It comes from the root word is bean which in Hebrew means between. And so you just kind of imagine yourself between two paths, between knowing how to treat someone, how to react to a, a situation. And obviously life is really complex, so there's multiple paths, but kind of just being between and being able to know the difference between a good path and a bad path, a path that leads to life and a path that leads to death. Like that's that betweening, that bina, that's understanding. Or sometimes it's discernment, or this is how it's translated. And to give someone understanding is often the word to explain. And man, just had this, just blowing my mind thinking about the tree of knowing good and bad, right? Adam and Eve, they're in the garden and they're told by God, like, eat of any of the fruit. So eat it all. Tree of life, eat it. But there's one tree I don't want you to have, and it's the tree of knowing good and bad. We often try, call it the tree of good and evil. It's the Hebrew word raw, and it, can mean evil, but mostly just means bad. It's knowing between good and bad. It's understanding. God is saying, don't eat of the tree of understanding. And that it's always weirded me out that God didn't want Adam and Eve to eat this tree because the story goes like, hey, you're my human partners to rule the world on my behalf. Why wouldn't he want them to have understand? He's given them everything else. And so you sit with that, and this is how the Bible works, it's meditation literature kind of sit with this angst about it. Like, what is God doing? Like, why would them taking that lead to death? And you get to the story of Solomon in 1 Kings 3, where he becomes king and God says, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? Name it. And the way I was taught the story was Solomon asked for wisdom. Solomon, this is what he says. He says, you know, Yahweh, like I am still a child. I don't know good from bad. And that's just a, that's a normal Hebrew idiom, knowing good from bad is, but kind of saying like, I'm naive. I don't have life experience yet. Adam and Eve are kind of described as like kind of, or almost you kind of think of them as kind of young, naive humans that God wanted to shape. They didn't know good from bad. How are they going to get it? And Solomon's like, I don't know good from bad. And he says, give me a listening heart, a Shema heart, a heart that listens and obeys and give me Bina, give me understanding. And God's like, heck yes. Which is weird because, right, like he told Adam and Eve, don't eat it. And Solomon says, that's what I want. Give me the fruit. Give me the, the tree of understanding of knowing good and bad. And God's like, yes, that's what I want you to have. In fact, you're going to have it in, in this immeasurable way. And so then you just start reflecting back on Adam and Eve and you're like, what if they were like Solomon and they asked God, like, okay, you give me the fruit. Like, I'm not supposed to take it can you give it to me in, in, in another way? Because God wants us to have understanding. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, give me understanding so that I might live. And so this pursuit of understanding something and helping someone else understand something, it could be applied to math and science, and, but it can also be applied to understanding the fear of the Lord, 
understanding how to choose between good and bad. And so what we have as humans is, is to is to eat of that fruit, but but there's a way to eat it that leads to death and there's a way that leads to life. And so I've just been tripping out on on, on that. Tripping out seems like a uniquely appropriate phrase. I mean, that man, I feel like we just got uh, a little bit of an insight into you with a whiteboard, just the, the whiteboard that's inside <laughs> your mind. I, I so appreciate you. Man, the recording of that video isn't going to be available for people to watch. We'll have you explaining, explaining. I don't know if they're going to record it, but I'll shape it up and it'll get to a place. I actually want to make an explainer on, I think, all the wisdom words, Bina, Hokmah, is is translated wisdom where bina is like you can understand the understanding knowing between hokmah is like a, is the artisan craft of being able to apply that it's often to apply it to like materials like a potter or a jewelry maker or the people that made the tabernacle like they had hokmah they knew how to use materials how to bend it and change it so that it could do what they wanted but it also can be applied to someone who could do that in life right you understand relationships you understand the world and then you can use that raw material to like craft a beautiful life. That's chokmah. So there's that word and then there's there's other wisdom words. And I, it'd be cool to do a whole uh, explainer series on those. So I'm hoping to do that soon. Yeah. Well, I, I look forward to that. Man, before we go, how, how can people connect with you and everything that you're doing? And obviously, we'll put all the links to Bible Project and everything in the show notes as well. I am probably most accessible on Twitter. I'm at John PDX, but that's where I'm active. So you can say hi to me there. And then Bible Project is bioproject.com. Awesome. Well, man, I think I so appreciate your example of being someone that takes your vocation seriously and works so hard clearly to hone your craft and understand the principles behind it. And then being willing to share that with myself and the people in our audience. It, I mean, I mean this when I say it's an inspiration. So thanks, John. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, man, there's so much in that conversation that was honestly so helpful for me as a communicator, as a leader, and honestly, as a person as well. I really appreciate John's perspective and his authenticity. I'll, I'll tell you, one of the takeaways that I'm continuing to chew on from that conversation is just the idea that, man, as a creator and maybe as a communicator and likely as a leader, it's pretty wise to start with the predisposition that people are actually really, really, really intelligent. And I feel like that's actually counterintuitive to what a lot of communication advice and even leadership advice challenges you to believe today. Uh, you know, a lot of times I think we're taught to believe like, oh, people are really dumb and so therefore you should treat them that way. But I just believe in the principle that people often act the way you treat them. So if you start with the predisposition that all people are dumb, then man, don't be surprised when you find yourself surrounded by people that act really dumb. But what would it look like if you treated your team, if you treated your customers, if you treated the people that you engage with every single day as being really, really, really smart. And that if they're not understanding something, it's because you're not explaining it well enough for a really, really smart, intelligent person to understand. That just feels like such a humble posture. It feels like such a healthy posture, but it also feels like an accurate posture. Um, I hope this conversation was as valuable for y'all as it was for me. And one more thing real quick before we go. Every week we send an email called Worth It Wednesday. That's because I think most email isn't worth it. It's not worth your time and worth your energy. So we said, okay, if we're going to send a weekly email, it better be worth it. Uh, that's why we call it Worth It Wednesday. And every Wednesday we send a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. So many of y'all are part of that community and you're taking those principles and that content that's in that emails and sharing it 
with your organization, but also putting it into action within your life and within your leadership. And so if you're a part of it, number one, I just want to say thank you for taking action. And then if you're not a part of it, you can sign up for the Worth It Wednesday community um, either in the show notes of this episode or at pathforgrowth.com and you'll be getting that next Worth It Wednesday email. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.